Episode 9 of Forward Together, a podcast from the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign where we shine a light on the people and ideas that drive the movement to end the evils of systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, and false moral narratives of religious nationalism. As director of Decarcerate Arkansas, Zachary Crow is a familiar name in Arkansas's activist circles. Decarcerate is a young organization founded in late 2015. And in today's podcast, Zachary shares challenges and successes that Decarcerate Arkansas faces while appealing to a conservative Arkansas legislature for policy change. In July 2020, Nate sat down with the Bologna, Arkansas native to probe his ideas on abolition and incarceration, his route to director, and the difficulty that many white Americans have acknowledging that systemic racism and inequality actually exist, despite real evidence like COVID-19's impact on lives of incarcerated people here in Arkansas. Zachary, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you, and uh, we'll get into uh, some of the stuff that you do here in a little bit, but before we do that, um, would you be willing to share with us about yourself, just a little bit, you know, as much as you're willing to, you know, what brought you, uh, what what informed you as a young person, what uh, kind of got you activated and led you to today? Um, we'd love to be able to hear about that. Sure. Um, my name is Zachary Crow, as you said. Um, I grew up uh, here in Arkansas, a little town called Bologna, um, and uh, have lived in Arkansas most of my life, um, with the exception of a, a two-year sojourn in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, moved to Little Rock about five years ago and, and for the last two years or so have been uh, working as the director of Decarcerate, um, which works uh, to end mass incarceration here in the state of Arkansas. My uh, journey to this point uh, has been long and a long winding road. Um, I grew up, uh, as I said, uh, here in Arkansas in a very um, conservative, fundamentalist um, uh, faith tradition uh, and um, spent a long time deconstructing um, those ideologies uh, and the um, really destructive nature of, of some of that, some of that theology and ideology. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a long uh, process of, of sort of reimagining what um, what the world uh, can and should look like. Um, I, uh, as I said, I have um, lived in Arkansas most of my life. I, I went to college uh, at Harding University in Searcy um, and um, 
found a, a group of friends who were asking similar questions and 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 deconstructing similar um, who were coming from similar places and, and we're sort of deconstructing those theologies together. Um, and so through that community of folks um, for those several um, years throughout college and, and several years after college when I still lived in Searcy, um, as well as, um, you know, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, living um, in uh, a Catholic worker community uh, called the Open Door Community, sort of found myself into new ways of, of understanding um, myself and the world and my place in that world. And uh, fast forward to today where I'm here in Arkansas and, and, um, and doing, doing the work I'm doing now. I appreciate you sharing that, uh, Zachary. It's uh, your, what you described in your journey coming from a small town, conservative Arkansas, conservative faith tradition um, to where you are today is very familiar to me. <laughs> and I think it's familiar to a lot of folks who listen who are listening, just uh, knowing that that journey of deconstructing and everything like that is uh, somewhat of a, a perilous journey. And so I would like to be able to kind of get into some of this a little more, uh, just from the things you were sharing. So growing up in Valonia, you said you had a conservative faith experience there. Uh, what did that, how did that express itself? Was it uh, just your um, traditional evangelical uh, traditions, or was it something different from that? Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in the Church of Christ, okay. um, which is, um, you know, has its own uh, baggage that we can we could dive into if you really wanted to. But, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, for me that, um, you know, I, I think it was a variety of things for me. I was in a very, um, I was in a very white space, um, mm -hmm. uh, was, um, did not grow up around many people of color, um, the the school system um, was um, almost exclusively white. Uh, my faith community, the, that church that I was raised in, um, was pretty exclusively uh, or was entirely white, uh, with one exception for about a year um, when I was a kid. Um, family of color um, for about a year. Um, I can remember when I was a child, but for the most part, um, you know, my entire world was, was spent around, uh, white folks. And so, you know, that, um, you know, uh, that kind of isolated world, um, that very much centered, uh, whiteness and, uh, very much, uh, sort of relied on the system of, of white supremacy to, to exist in the way that it existed. And then, you know, the faith tradition itself, um, you know, certainly not exclusively the Church of Christ, but the Church of Christ um, very much, you know, exists out of, out of places of patriarchy. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, also, you know, grew up sort of indoctrinated in that, that system. 
um, you know, as many other conservative traditions, um, very um, heteronormative, homophobic, transphobic, those kinds of things. Um, and so it was really, um, really wasn't until college that um, I was able to um, start sort of rethinking some of those things. Um, was the first time I um, sort of had an extended community of, of folks who um, sort of existed outside of that world, people of color. Um, you know, I had friends who um, were gay and lesbian who came out to me in college. That was a big part of my, um, that's a big, um, was a big moment for me that allowed me to start deconstructing. Wow. Um, yeah. Some of that, uh, some of that theology around, um, around orientation and, um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was the right group of folks in the right, you know, moment uh, that were all sort of in this same kind of insular space yeah. uh, that were uh, sort of confronting the same system at the same time. Um, wow. And, um, you know, college is an interesting experience because it's sort of an extended period of time. It was really four years with this group of friends yeah. where we had to sort of like wrestle with, with this. And, um, and so, um, you know, I'm really thankful for that, um, that time. What fascinates me about what you're sharing here, because I'm familiar with Harding University. Um, I'm familiar with Searcy. That's actually where I work myself. Um, I lived there for a year. Um, very um, unique atmosphere of in Searcy. Um, and Church of Christ is, is dominant, right? That's a university that's that was kind of organized by Church of Christ uh, folks. Um, so I think it's really interesting that you were able to find a community that was diverse and also willing to question things and begin to work through different issues such as you know, uh, queer issues and uh, racism and all that kind of stuff. So was that uh, kind of a normal thing in Harding or is that um, we just fortunate to find a unique group there? the group of friends that I, you know, am referring to, you know, in the moment, it certainly, you know, in that time, it certainly felt like we were the exception um, and that there weren't many of those spaces. Yeah. Although um, more and more, I meet folks who, you know, a decade later have become radicalized uh, mm. who came out of that system, gotcha. uh, whether it be the Church of Christ or Harding and uh, you know, I was at a protest Sunday with folks from Harding, uh, one, a, a, a good friend and one who I, I met there. Um, and, and so, you know, I, um, you know, I'm hearing more and more folks who sort of come out of that system who have become radicalized in some way. And so, wow. uh, you know, it's been 10 years since I've been there. And so I don't really have a pulse on what that, yeah. what that space looks like now, although, you know, I hear, um, you know, I hear from time to time uh, about, um, you know, a, a, there's a, 
there's a black student union uh, on Harding's campus uh, that certainly didn't exist when I was there and they're doing some uh, important work um, from what I hear. Um, there are still, of course, um, uh, queer students there who are doing work. Um, and, and so uh, there are certainly always going to be folks uh, at Harding, and I, I hope that continues to, yeah. to grow that are sort of pushing back against this. But, uh, you know, it's been nearly a decade since I've, I've been there, and so I don't... Gotcha. Uh, I don't have a real sense of like what what that space looks like today, but um, uh, you know I'm, I'm continually surprised by yeah. how many folks um, you know whether it was at the you know during that time or you know after the fact, but folks who came through that system who have who have learned a different way. Growing up in Valonia, you, you just mentioned all the structures that were in place that were built off of white supremacy and the uh, you know, extreme conservatism of Church of Christ and whatnot. Um, did you feel during that time of your upbringing as a child, before you went to college, were you pretty much swept up in the, the obliviousness to conversations around race and um, other issues that, uh, or, or were you already beginning to to ponder those things even before you uh, left for college? You know, my family um, and the church that I grew up in, I think very rarely um, talked about racism, particularly structural racism. And so yeah. there was, you know, from time to time conversations about, um, you know, accepting everyone and being nice to everyone. and Right sort of things that are, are rooted in sort of a, a sanitized yes. kind of personal responsibility. Um, but certainly um, neither, you know, no, I, I certainly didn't have conversations, um, you know, before um, college around, you know, s systems and institutions of structural yeah. racism. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, I, both of my, my, both of my grandfathers, um, died by the time I was, uh, passed away by the time I was three, uh, but grew up, uh, remember my grandmothers both live, um, lived in extremely rural areas. Okay. Uh, and so in, in those spaces, when we were there, um, racism was, more, uh, more visible in different ways. Gotcha. Uh, and, and remember some conversations with my, uh, my father around, um, you know, those not being appropriate, um, uh, you know, statements or images or, or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, most of the time we were in a uh, an all-white space that didn't actually have to, that had built itself on not having to deal with these issues. Right.
know, you mentioned how there is often, and very much so, a lack of awareness or acceptance or conversations around systemic issues. And uh, this is kind of a, a, an ongoing question that I've been wrestling with myself, and I, I talked to other guests who come on with me so far who are white. Why is it hard for most white um, communities and white spaces to recognize the existence of systemic issues, systemic problems, structural oppression. Why is it so hard for us to accept those? And it's easy for us to accept individual bad behavior by a few bad apples. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think particularly in kind of all white spaces, uh, white folks have, um, you know, isolated themselves in, in ways where they, they sort of don't have to acknowledge that but I, I mean, I, the, the larger, I mean, piece of this, I think, is that, you know, most fo white folks don't want to acknowledge uh, systems uh, of racism because it means they have to give up some privilege. Yeah. Uh, and um, in order to actually uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, privilege and institutionalized racism exists, like all of those things require uh, you know, action on behalf of um, white folks who, who benefit from these systems of oppression. And, and um, you know, most, <laughs> most folks don't want to actually uh, do the work of sort of wrestling um, yeah. with, uh, with those systems. It always does, it does seem to come down to that, doesn't it? And uh, it, it costs you something to acknowledge systemic issues, structural issues, structural oppression. Because to, to change that means we have to actually be impacted by it. Um, appreciate that. Um, so what uh, also was fascinating to me is that you went from conservative you know, world to Harding University, and there you met this some some folks who begin to help you see things differently. So what what do you think um, made it possible for you to begin to be open to receiving? new information that began to restructure your own imagination. What, what about that, that, is it something inside of you or is it something that was unique to the people you're with? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish there was like sort of a magic answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I mean, for me, for me, this has been a long, uh, a long process um, that, you know, of course, uh, continues. Yeah. Um, and, um, right, like, if folks don't become uh, uh, anti-racist, uh, they, um, you know, uh, continue to, to choose uh, that path. Um, and, um, and, and so, you know, it's not a magic sort of, um, you know, lever that gets pulled or, or switch that gets flipped. Right. Um, it was it was certainly increment uh, incremental for me. Um, um, I mean, I, I think early on in college, it was it was sort of the process of of questioning particular uh, doctrine or particular um, pieces of theology. I, I remember early on, uh, sort of <laughs> jumping from church to church to more and more, you know, uh, progressive spaces until I ran out of churches, right? <laughs> uh, and, um, 
And, you know, and so, so part of it started around doctrine. Um, and then part of it was just about um, uh, proximity, right? Yeah. Like one of my, uh, my roommate for the second two years of uh, my time in college was, uh, was a black man. Um, and so like being, you know, uh, being like living alongside a person of color, yeah. uh, was part of that process, um, you know, uh, having a network of friends, some of whom were, uh, queer, um, you know, like that proximity yeah. mattered. Um, and, um, you know, I, I can think, you know, I became involved in a group, um, the last couple of years of college, um, that would drive every Friday night into uh, Little Rock and um, deliver food to unhoused folks. Um, And, you know, looking back on that, there was, there was um, sort of an unhealthy um, kind of white saviorness to Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at the time, it was a very, it was very much, uh, you know, an important uh, part of 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 my story because, you know, it was a, it was kind of conti- you know, it was somewhat regular for two years, you know, weekly sort of proximity with um, extreme poverty, um, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a big part of it. And, and then that extended, of course, to uh, my time in Atlanta, where I was living in this Catholic worker community. Um, uh, many of the folks who lived in this um, house were folks who were coming in directly um, after living on the streets. So unhoused folks oh, wow. were moving into the house folks who were moving into the community directly from prison. Um, you know, the life and work of, of that community was um, services to um, folks experiencing homelessness and then folks in prison, particularly on death row. Um, and so I came to uh, befriend a man on, on Georgia's death row who has since been executed. Wow. But all of those like levels of, yeah. of proximity were really important like being in a space where um, conversation could happen was important. Um, And and then, you know, in Atlanta, particularly in college, and then also uh, at the open door, um, there were spaces of of sort of alternative education, right? Mm. So like there was the like, there was the college curriculum. And then there was like the, the, the academic work that we were doing ourselves, like whether that was, you know, book clubs or conversation groups or, or whatever to like have these conversations um, in that space. And, and then of course, Open Door um, is really when I, um, uh, you know, spent two years really digging into um, history around, around systemic racism, uh, history around um, prison slavery, um, you know, like those kinds of systems that are a part of my life and work today. Definitely. When we think about proximity, sometimes we, we over, overemphasize that to the point to where it's like, 
that's all we need. We just need all to be together, you know. And uh, and it's like, well, that's uh, it's not like we haven't had people of color around us for a long time and still having all these these issues. However, it does play a key role. I think you're you're right about that as far as um, having a healthy proximity where it allows you to with an, with an open mind and heart and listening ears and a, and a and a humble attitude. You know, you can benefit from that proximity versus causing more harm than good in that proximate space. All right, so you, you spent uh, four years at Harding University, you graduated, and then you mentioned moving on to Atlanta for a couple of years. Atlanta, Georgia is a big change from Valonia and from Searcy, Arkansas, demographics-wise and every way. I mean, you mentioned uh, your experiences with the open house community, uh, open doors community. But over, uh, beyond that, what was it like living in Atlanta, and and um, was it? Uh, did you find it enriching in many ways? My community in Atlanta was very much um, uh, sort of centered around the the house and the community and the the work that I was doing, um, and, and so. And, you know, I didn't have a car, and so, like, I sort of lived, you know, Atlanta is sort of clumping of neighborhoods, and so, like, I, um, you know, in retrospect, I didn't see or experience as much of the city as as maybe I should have and, like, would have liked to, Um, but, I I mean, the one real exception to that um, is, um, you know, it was in Atlanta that I discovered uh, sort of the poetry uh, slam world uh, and um, sort of um, that community, um, um, which, um, you know, really a, a community of activist artists that, um, you know, is, is led, um, uh, you know, like lots of folks participate and I was welcomed into that world of course but like you know like it it um you know it's a group of activist artists that really you know those spaces are often led by people of color and queer folks and um and so um like it, it is um it is sort of a it's an incredibly diverse uh, community of folks uh, really supportive uh, community of folks. Um, uh, it feels like the best of, of what uh, church communities should be yeah. uh, without any of the <laughs> without any of the baggage. Right. Uh, that was my experience um, in those spaces. Um, and so that um, that outside of the open door sort of became like um, really nurturing space. Um, you know, the city itself, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, as much as Atlanta sort of likes to think of itself as as this, um, you know, important space for the civil rights movement, and, you know, it was with King, but like, like, there's still a lot of, <laughs> still a lot of issues. Atlanta is an interesting place to go um, and uh, learn um, history, particularly history around um, 
you know, from the 60s and, uh, you know, particularly King's work, you know, Atlanta likes to claim King and, um, and there are still lots of, of folks in Atlanta who um, worked with and alongside um, King. Um, and, and so it was a really, you know, uh, enriching space to sort of learn that history. Gotcha. Um, but then when you dig, um, you know, when you dig deeper, you sort of understand uh, the ways in which Atlanta has continued to exploit people of color for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, the, the, um, the driving out of black and brown uh, folks uh, when the Olympic, the Olympic stadium was built, right? Like mm -hmm. the way in which that segregated the city, mm -hmm. uh, the way in which Coca-Cola, uh, you know, oppresses and marginalizes folks, um, you know, as, as they're located there in Atlanta. And, and so, you know, Atlanta um, was a really, you know, it was a great space, particularly for two years to kind of learn some of that history and, and to be in conversation with with elders and, and uh, mentors and, and folks who could really sort of help um, kind of walk through that uh, um, that part of, of King's life and work. Um, but then, you know, it was also, you know, uh, a space in which, you know, proximity with with folks uh, in prison and on death row and folks who were unhoused in that city, you know, there's there's the narrative of Atlanta and then there's the the counter narrative and I, I yeah. think the counter narrative is always more important. And that's true everywhere. It seems like there's um, there's, a, there's always a need or a longing to sanitize history. And that counter narrative is kind of essential to be able to keep us in the right perspective on what, what you know what actually happened and what is still happening in a lot of places. You spent two years in Atlanta, came back to Arkansas, ultimately ended up in Little Rock. And you, like you mentioned, your experiences in Atlanta uh, with proximity to people who are incarcerated and on death row, all that's kind of culminated to you being uh, very active in the the movement to end mass incarceration in, in, Little, in Arkansas. Uh, can you talk about that, how that kind of... Uh, how that kind of started and led to decarcerate being formed and, and what you're doing? After I left Atlanta, I, I spent close to a year on the road. Um, I did lots of couch surfing, uh, visited, uh, stayed a couple of months in Austin, Texas with a friend from school, spent some time in um, Portland and, and Seattle and, and, and and so I, I sort of lived on the road for a while. Um, 
but when I move for uh, probably about nine months, not quite a year, um, and then, you know, ran out of money and like, all right, it's, fine to, it's time to like settle somewhere um, and plant some roots and like, you know, pay some bills. <laughs> and um, found um, sort of a one year uh, Vista, AmeriCorps Vista position okay. uh, at uh, Our House, which is a nonprofit here in Little Rock. Ended up there for two years, uh, spent a year or so trying to make a, a documentary. My background's in film. Uh, mm. so the, after I left uh, our house, uh, that was sort of always a, a limited commitment there, you know, sort of years of quote unquote service um, through AmeriCorps and, and you can extend up to a second year, which I did. And so when that time came to an end, I started trying to work on this film. Um, and um, that, for a variety of reasons, never materialized. And so I uh, worked on that for about a year, and, and it became clear that wasn't going to uh, happen. Um, and um, uh, needed a job and needed to figure out what was next, and um, heard that uh, Decarcerate, which, which had already formed, um, uh, in 20, late 2015, uh, had some money to hire um, sort of a part-time uh, director. And uh, so I ended up uh, in that role mm. um, and have been there. Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to do math, which might be difficult. You know, I've been there um, going on three years, I think um, that and, you know, other, groups and places I've rooted myself or sort of what's keeping me here. And But you mentioned you had a background in film. Was that from uh, what you kind of went to university for and everything? Yeah, I mean, Harding doesn't actually have a film program. Um, it, it was a sort of a communication degree that, uh, what did they call it? Electronic media production. Gotcha. It's kind of like, it was kind of like a jack of all trades situation. It was like, you know, master of none situation. It was, um, you know, some, it was a little bit of like, there was some graphic design, there was a little bit of journalism, there was um, some film, there was some radio production, uh, there was some advertising, there was some marketing, you know, it was like this kind of hodgepodge degree, gotcha. you know, all of which was, it was helpful. Um, and I draw on, um, you know, um, I think video skills, particularly in a digital age, are, are good skills to have. Um, and so, uh, you know, Decarcerate's working on a video series right now that I'm going to be able to, you know, take the lead on editing without having to, you know, pay somebody to do it. So, like, they're they're good, you know, skills to have and, and things I draw on. But, um, you know, yeah, it's not the career path anymore. Right. <laughs> No, that's super valuable. I mean, you can't you can't deny the power of film and video videography, and the age of social media and and so forth. Um, that's for sure. Uh, so being a part of Decarcerate, first of all, you, you mentioned already that it's a organization uh, striving to end mass incarceration in Arkansas. Uh, can you uh, kind of take us down a little deeper into Decarcerate and what you're doing and and what does that mean to be ending mass incarceration? 
Sure. So, I mean, I'll give sort of the primer or the elevator pitch, right? And you can, <laughs> you can follow up if you have specific questions. Yeah. Um, but, you know, DeCarcer, um, you know, is working to end uh, these systems of, of punishment, the uh, carceral state, the injustice system, right? Mass incarceration. And uh, here in the state of Arkansas and our really sort of have four programmatic goals or four ways that we try and do that. Uh, one's around public education. Um, and so uh, we have an annual conference. Uh, it's gonna look a little bit different um, this year amidst COVID. Uh, and, you know, speak with uh, groups, you know, participate in panels, um, you know, uh, uh, work with, uh, you know, news media and uh, just hit submit on a op-ed uh, earlier today, you know, so like a variety of ways of trying to educate the public about these systems uh, and these injustices. Um, the second would be policy. Um, and so, you know, Arkansas has legislative sessions every other year. Uh, and so, um, you know, we're working right now, uh, you know, the next is coming up uh, in January. And so we're working with uh, legislators, a handful of legislators around, you know, potential policy uh, proposals for 21. Um, and, uh, you know, the third way that we work um, is really by trying to build the leadership of uh, directly impacted folks, um, folks who have experienced um, firsthand these uh, systems. Um, and so um, outside of me, DeCarter has one other staff member, uh, a woman who um, spent over 30 years uh, in Arkansas prisons. Uh, she was sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile uh, and got out um, a couple of years ago under some new Supreme Court law. She uh, works with us uh, part-time, but we're trying our, our damnedest to get her up full-time. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, and so she uh, leads a good bit of our work. Uh, you know, the other um, piece of this conversation is really around um, how um, to sort of continue to provide resources to folks who are directly impacted that want to do uh, organizing uh, work, want to do justice work around these issues. And so one of the ways we're working to do that is we're developing uh, a training curriculum um, that uh, directly impacted people and other organizers can um, can teach to a different cohort of folks every year. And so we hope to start rolling that out next year, but are, are just beginning to um, uh, start working on that curriculum. And it'll be media training, how to lobby legislators, how to build a campaign, you know, how to... Um, you know, do power analysis, uh, how to advocate on social media. You know, I, I can think of a couple of folks who spent, you know, decades and decades um, uh, in prison who 
for whom social media is a, a different okay. <laughs> different beast um, than it is for uh, me as a millennial who can't remember a time there wasn't a computer in the house. <laughs> um, and, um, um, you know, also just kind of organizing activism 101. So we'll talk a little bit about direct action. We'll talk about, you know, a variety of, of forms of protest. Um, and then we'll also um, have conversations about what self-care and um, what self-care looks like. You know, uh, nice. this work for folks who have been traumatized by these systems can be a, a re-traumatizing process. Um, yeah. it, is, uh, it can be re-traumatizing to continually fight uh, the systems by which you have been traumatized. And um, so um, anyway, we're, we're working on that uh, curriculum and trying to figure out what that looks like and are starting that process with conversations, uh, ha by having conversations with directly impacted people to really see um, what would be helpful. You know, what do you want um, as a part of this curriculum? So I threw out a lot of things. You know, we have a lot of thoughts, um, many of which I just listed of what feels helpful, but uh, you know, want to be tailoring that to the needs and desires of folks uh, who would be receiving that training. And so that, that's really the third piece we're working on and see becoming a larger part of our work. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth piece, um, uh, the fourth way we do this work is through our campaigns. And so right now we are actively organizing against solitary confinement uh, and against fines, fees, and bails, so court debt, debtors' prisons. Um, and, you know, both of those campaigns uh, have their own long-term strategies, have monthly meetings, um, have, um, you know, goals and, and projects. And, and so that's, you know, one way, you know, sort of the most direct way for folks to get involved is by, by joining one of those campaigns. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's the, that's the short version, even though I feel like I rambled for a while. No, that's good. That's good. I appreciate that insight. Why do you think it's important? And one of your goals with the decarcerate is to build leadership from impacted people and also give them resources and training. Why do you think it's important to go that route with the actual people who are impacted? Yeah, I mean, I, I think folks who are closest to um, problems are closest to solutions, right? Yeah. Um, and so... I understand solitary confinement, um, like on an intellectual level, right? I've like read some books and I've right. read some articles and I can like talk about the mental health, you know, repercussions of what solitary confinement looks like, but I've like never experienced that. And so um, our staff member who was held in solitary confinement, uh, while pregnant, right, like comes at that work um, in a much different way. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, you know, this work is only possible for me because of the mentorship and the, the leadership uh, of people who understand these systems in a different way than I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's imperative that folks who um, have lived experience 
um, and sort of a visceral, deeper understanding of, of, of the impacts of these systems, not only be, um, you know, involved in the work, but, but at the forefront of the work. Yeah, I think it's well said. That's uh, one of the core ethos of the Poor People's Campaign as well, is that they want to lift the voices of impacted people, uh, even above and beyond and you know, those of us who are um, uh, kind of outside that impact, but to have some intellectual understanding of, of those those uh, experiences. And uh, so I think that was well said. So you talked about, um, as far as your organizational structure, that you spend time doing public ed education. And I will say this, the uh, annual Decarcerate Conference is uh, not to be missed if you can make it wherever you are in the state, uh, if you can make, you know, I know this year is going to be different, but, you know, this is going to be going for, hopefully going on for a long time, for many years to come, and um, you won't be disappointed if you do get a chance to, to experience the Decarcerate Annual Conference. You won't leave leave the same. You'll leave, uh, you know, impressed and, and uh, with some work to do, that's for sure. And uh, so what's it been like doing this public education Especially your annual annual conference, is that a has that been a bigger challenge than you thought it would be, or is it has it been pretty well just a a great experience? And your and and what was it like building that uh, annual conference concept? I, I sort of joke that we backed ourselves into a corner because we had this idea for a conference two years ago, and without much thought called it the first annual conference, um, <laughs> and then we like. Uh -oh. <laughs> months and months like putting on this thing that sort of exhausted all of us and then we realized oh we got to do this again <laughs> <laughs> um and um so this will be the third year um and i, I think this year's conference will look digital or will is moving virtual um and will probably be a, a smaller um sort of rethought version of the conference. But it's, um, yeah, it's become, I think, one of the more important things we do each year. Um, and one of, of the ways that we sort of engage folks around these issues. It's, you know, become one of my favorite parts of this work. Um, you know, we've, um, I think, been able in the first two years to really pull together some you know, powerful and uh, really important voices uh, in this work uh, from a wide variety of backgrounds. And so the conference sort of follows kind of a TED Talk model mm. um, where we have a variety of speakers come. Um, and we really do this thing where we don't tell anybody what to talk about. Um, we just say, come and be brilliant. Mm. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> Uh, and so it allows space for lots of different voices on lots of different uh, topics, all centering around this criminal punishment system mm. uh, that we have. And so we have in the first two years have had folks talk about uh, policing and racial disparities and, um, you know, court fines. And uh, we've had folks talk about uh, the death penalty, and we've had folks talk about uh, the ways that uh, prison helped historically bolster the uh, Black Power movement, mm. 
right? So we've had a variety of, 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 of different um, topics, which really, you know, allow folks to get um, a lot of different perspectives from, from really important voices. Um, yeah, it's become one of my favorite days of the year, for sure. Is it uh, difficult to, to find or get folks on board to, to, be, to come speak, or is it kind of each year, is it get, I mean, you only done it two years, but is it getting easier to get folks to, to come out to share, um, or are there a lot of folks eager to, to take the stage? We've had very few people say, I think I can think of two people who have not, who have, you know, shot us down. <laughs> uh, one because of a scheduling conflict and one, uh, I guess they were both scheduling conflicts. Um, and, and so most folks have been really receptive um, and most folks have been really receptive, which is telling um, because they're they're getting paid a very very small honorarium that i imagine <laughs> is vastly uh insufficient and much lower than what they would be getting to speak in other places um and so we've we've been really blessed to have folks come uh and share for you know not much more than the cost of their travel yeah. and lodging and um, and, um, you know, it's the way that we've been able to, to keep the conference itself so affordable for folks um, and to offer scholarships for impacted people and, and folks for whom the registration fee is, is preventative. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we've had some really impressive, you know, big named folks come in and to do it mostly out of the <laughs> kindness of their heart and... Um, <laughs> because they believe in the work and, 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 um, and so, yeah, that's been great. Yeah. Um, eventually that may change, but <laughs> we've, we've, uh, we've gotten by for the first two years, um, you yeah. know, put together a pretty impressive lineup without a, without a lot of money in the bank. Yeah, that's right. I think, like you said, I think it speaks to the importance of the, the work that you're doing that uh, I mean, we're talking about we're, we're talking about people coming from across the country, not just in Arkansas. There's folks coming from uh, different areas that are, you know, experts in their fields that come and share, and impacted people uh, coming and sharing. It's it's quite impressive because, uh, like you said, it speaks to the power of what you're doing and why it's so important and why folks are on board with it. Another aspect of what you talked about is you know you deal with policy making. What is that like having to deal with the state house and trying to create policy and also trying to, you know, resist harmful policies? Uh, have you found it to be a just a very difficult in our our state's um, um, state house makeup and 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 ideals? Is it is it a challenge or you, do you find it productive? How's that going for you? I mean, <laughs> we we live. Um in Arkansas. Um, we all three uh, branches of government are uh, controlled by Republicans. Um, uh, our legislature has a Republican supermajority. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so these conversations um, 
can be very difficult at a legislative level. You know, for for us, and and we haven't been doing um, work on a on a policy level for a long time. Uh, first, because we're so young, and uh, you know, as an organization, and second, because you know, Arkansas because there's only a legislative session every two years and we've only been around for since 2015, you know, there just haven't been many sessions. Right. So we're still sort of learning uh, what's helpful. Um, you know, we um, have put forward bills that feel like easy wins that have not come through. Yeah. Uh, put forward bills um, that feel like long shots, but are the right moral <laughs> stand to take. Right. Um, and um, become a way to sort of have a very public conversation about issues that matter. Um, and so, you know, we will likely continue that approach, um, uh, trying to get some, some incremental wins, by, but also having the, the hard fights um, and um, have a couple of allies in the legislature that um, yeah. are willing to take up those fights with us. You know, the other thing I'll say is that I think change comes in a lot of different ways uh, and very rarely comes from the top. Yeah. Uh, most uh, change uh, comes from the bottom up. Um, and so that's uh, where the majority of our time and, and effort is spent. Uh, in cre is in creating uh, sort of mass movements, but every other year we have an opportunity for a couple of months to try and um, try and uh, create some change uh, at the Capitol, and and we'll continue to fight those fights, you know, every every second year. But um, yeah, over the next you know decade or so of our work, time will tell, you know. Right. Uh, you know what that looks like. I, I will say though that um, it has gotten easier uh, to have some of these conversations uh, with Republicans at the Capitol. You know, I think nationally, um, you know, with things like the First Step Act and, and other sort of very small kind of incremental policy that has passed in recent years on a national level, uh, Republicans are more willing to engage some of these conversations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, only to a certain degree, you know, like are willing to talk about things like reentry and, um, you know, these kind of very small um, uh, bills that, that honestly don't have a ton of effect for a ton of people. You know, having a conversation about uncompensated prison slave labor, you know, that was a different reality. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do find hope in the fact that more people are willing to engage more conversations, but it's still an uphill battle for us, for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's interesting what you're talking about as far as uh, more conser conservative-minded uh, politicians, uh, specifically Republicans. Uh, there is some similarities in the, in the, the desire to end in, uh Mass incarceration, if anything, it's because of the feeling fiscally responsible and the fact that you know, incarceration systems are very expensive to maintain. Have you been able to have find any conversations that if you go down that route, trying to 
uh, appeal to their their idea of being fiscally responsible politicians? Is that that do you get any uh, headway with that? Money is always a way to appeal to folks on the right. Um, I think there are a couple of different reasons that um, conservatives are um, more willing to entertain this conversation than they were, you know, even a couple of years ago. Um, and, and one of them is certainly money. Um, uh, prisons are really, really, really expensive, uh, you know, particularly for Republicans who want to cut taxes, you know, continually, <laughs> like that money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's important to say, you know, like sometimes, sometimes Republicans are willing to side with us around things, uh, but their motives are very different than right. ours, you know? And so like, that's just worth, um, acknowledging and, 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 and knowing, yeah, I mean, money is always a way to, um, always a part of the conversation uh, for in spaces where, um, you know, budgets are, are set up the way they are, you know, prisons are the majority of Arkansas's budget, um, you know, or systems that, you know, wow. are connected to prison, you know, when you start thinking about all of the money we spend to lock folks up, you know, Wow. Policing dollars, prison dollars, parole dollars, you know, when we start adding all that stuff up, you know, like mm. there are all these like all this money. And so when you cut taxes, where does that money come from? You know, well, it comes from things like public education, you know, yeah. uh, because Republicans are, you know, and not just Republicans, but politicians are are often, you know, are often unwilling to do things like defund police or cut police budgets right. or <laughs> um, cut the prison budget or cut parole dollars, you know, um, those budgets are so massive and bloated that, um, Incredible. you know, when you keep trying to cut money from the budget, it's going to come from these social services and things like public education and yeah. those systems that people need. Um, and, and so, you know, things like public education and prisons are very, very interconnected, you know, yeah. because of the reality of the budget. And almost like you said, uh, you could even correlate reduction and spending on public education increases the volume of the school to prison pipeline. Where so you're now funneling more, more money into that system because you have to because you're you're taken away from the public education that helps lead people into a better path. the lines of policy making and, and working with politicians and trying to uh, make an impact in the state house that's a obviously a, an area that we in the poor people's campaign we're trying to get better at as well we are as you know um, 
you know, fairly young as well. We're, we're striving to organize better around that legislative session. And uh, 2019 was our first real experience at trying to be a part of that. And we were grateful to kind of be able to partner up with, with Decarcerate and some things. And you really saw that, man, this, this does take a a real well-organized effort to kind of to to have people you know, informed and prepared to speak and to get in those uh, different uh, committee meetings and have an impact. And it, it does take a while to build, build up that organizational infrastructure. And so I definitely have sympathy and empathy for you when it comes to, you know, the way it looks now, you know, hopefully over time, We'll, we'll all become more effective at that uh, policy-making uh, impact and uh, being a source of good trouble in those committees uh, that can result in better better stuff. So um, we're, we're great. I'm, I'm grateful that we we can kind of walk this journey together as uh, coalition partners. What about uh, COVID-19? And uh, how? And uh, this this could be a long conversation about that. But uh, can you give us kind of a your insights from what you're seeing and being part of Decarcerate, more tapped into the incarceral system and how COVID-19 has been wreaking havoc there? Prisons have been devastated yeah. all across the country, but particularly in Arkansas uh, by this pandemic. There, um, you know, our, our friends who are currently incarcerated, you know, we've for months and months have heard about um, the insufficient uh, um, action taken by, you know, or the lack of action really taken by the Department of Correction uh, to try and limit the spread um, of this virus. And um, it's really appalling at this point, 14 people in prisons have died um, and that blood is on the hands of the governor and uh, prison officials. Um, at the beginning of this, before there was a, a confirmed case uh, in uh, prison, the Secretary of Correction, Wendy Kelly, said, "If the virus gets into prison, it will be uh, it will be disastrous." Right? Yeah. Like that was the direct quote, and she wasn't wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, there has been a lawsuit filed or there was a lawsuit filed that, that, um, you know, depicted, um, uh, all of the ways that, uh, the Department of Correction or ADC, Arkansas Department of Correction, um, you know, the lack of action that ADC took to prevent this. And really, the ways in which they perpetuated this by by issuing orders for guards who had already tested positive to go to continue to work, wow. you know, so long as they weren't quote unquote showing symptoms, yeah. uh, sending staff between prisons, you know, where they're from places where there were positive cases to places where there weren't, uh, and you know. We've also heard, you know, reports and, and uh, it's now been documented by media. Um, you know, there were um, some uprisings that happened in response to the fact that people weren't being fed. Uh, and, you know, folks were responded to with tear gas, 
you know, what are the repercussions of gassing a prison full of people with a respiratory virus, you know? And so like, you know, I, I, um, um, the system has been complicit in, in the death and the uh, infection of folks uh, since the beginning of this. You know, the governor and the system has, you know, sort of flat out refused all of this documented evidence uh, against them. Um, the, the New Yorker uh, wrote a piece about the spread of um, COVID at Cummins um, that the governor at a press conference denied. Much of what was reported in the New Yorker was confirmed by articles in The Nation <laughs> uh, and uh, KUAR, right? So like, if the governor wants to say a journalist is lying, he's going to have to say that three journalists across three independent <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, outlets, you know, working independently of one another have somehow thought up the same lie, you know? Yeah, right. And so, you know, it, it's really appalling, not only that, um, the state of Arkansas has been complicit in this pandemic, um, but that they, you know, are sort of doubling down uh, on their um, refusal and, and denial of, you know, acknowledging the ways that they've done that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing to say is Cummins has gotten a lot of press attention because it was the first, but at this point there have been positive cases in most every prison in Arkansas. Wow. Uh, and so the governor, while he keeps announcing the numbers um, as a part of these press conferences, he's not talking about where those numbers are coming from. Mm -hmm. And there are continual, you know, there are continually new prisons that are being, uh, where there are positive cases. Wow. Uh, and, you know, now more prisons than not, you know, have had these positive cases, uh, either of, of incarcerated folks uh, or, you know, staff. Um, and so, you know, the virus has made its way in everywhere. Yeah. You know, we're getting some reports from jails, but, you know, there's not enough testing happening in jails. And so, I mean, I, I think a massive spread of uh, this virus in jails, which has, you know, massive... Um, repercussions because those people get out pretty quickly you know right. um and um you know are going back into the community yeah that's a great summary of of the state of affairs and i think that's like you said the word for that is devastating and and uh reckless <laughs> when it comes to what's what's uh happening with our state government and in our prisons um I, I would like for you to you know to give us a little bit of education on the difference between prisons and jails, just for us a real brief, a differentiate between those so folks can be on the same page with that. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, jails are where you go when you get arrested. Uh, I've spent some time in a local jail. <laughs> um, prisons are where you go when you get convicted and sentenced, right? Folks spend time in jail either because they're too poor to make bail um, or um, 
you know, while they're waiting to be seen by a judge, you know, sort of the immediate first stop after you get arrested. And then when you go to trial and have been convicted, you know, of a crime um, and are sentenced, uh, you then go to prison. So, so jails in theory are temporary, you know, and although folks can stay there for long, long periods of time, particularly if court dates get dragged out, which is happening more and more, you know, in the time of COVID, um, or if they can't make bail or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, but jails in theory are more temporary and, and prisons are these long sentences, you know, once you're convicted. So you can see why, you know, the COVID outbreak in jails can be so uh, you know, detrimental because like you said, it, it could be like a revolving door of folks that are in and out, in and out, you know, they catch it in the prison or they bring it into the, into the I'm sorry, catch it in the jail or bring it to the jail, spread it and go back to the communities. This can impact every, everywhere from urban areas to rural areas can all be impacted and it becomes a super spreading you know, mechanism and uh, very concerning. And, and, uh, and of course, with the prisons, we're dealing with people who are contained, nowhere to go, aren't going to be going in and out stuck there at the mercies of whatever comes in their, in, in, into their, uh, their spaces. And uh, so both very, very challenging with this COVID-19. The, the frustrating thing is, uh, from what I'm hearing from what you're saying, is that this all could have been handled a lot differently. Uh, there could have been ways to manage the virus where it wouldn't be such a, a detriment. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yes and no. Um, I, I mean, I think I think there are ways in which the Department of Correction and the state of Arkansas exacerbated this uh, in ways that added fuel to the fire. Yeah. Um, however, the system is not designed in a way to handle something like this. Folks in prison have always received substandard health care. Yeah. Folks, you know, prisons have always been overcrowded. You know, social distancing has never been possible in prisons. In some way, this is an indictment of the system itself, uh, as well as the fact um, that folks at the top um, refused to take what precautions uh, they could. Yeah, I mean, early calls and what we saw in other places and what folks have called for here continually um, is the release of folks from prison. Yeah. And, and after, after some outcry here in the state, the governor did that in a very, very small way. There were a couple of hundred folks who have been released who were already within six months, who met certain criteria and were already in six uh, months of their release, um, but it was a drop in the bucket, right? Like yeah. the, the way to the way to deal with a pandemic like this is mass decarceration. Like that's the only way you can get people six feet apart behind a <laughs> prison wall. You know, is to have fewer people behind the prison wall. I appreciate your insights there, and that's I think that's uh, well said. That um, the system itself is woefully structured to be able to mitigate this issue and this needs to be flat out decarcerated. What motivated you to want to be a part of the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign along with everything you're already doing with Decarcerate? What what appealed to you? What what uh, drew you to the campaign? I think prison 
are a system certainly built on um, on racial injustice yeah. um, and um, are a continuation of uh, slavery. Prison slave labor is, is a reality. Um, and um, prisons grow out of a history of, of uh, racial injustice yeah. um, all the way back to slavery. Um, but prisons are also prisons and jails, particularly, are also classist uh, institutions. Mm. Uh, folks uh, of color and uh, poor folks um, have always and and continue to be uh, disproportionately affected uh, when it comes to um, the criminal punishment system. Uh, and so, uh, class is very much a part of this conversation. Um, and uh, I don't know that there's a way to separate um, the systems uh, of injustice uh, when it comes to things like incarceration and, and prisons and, and the criminal injustice system without talking about poverty. Yeah. And so they're very interconnected. And, you know, all, um, all systems of injustice are, are interconnected, yeah. right? It's like the world we live in. Right. You know, we don't live single issue lives, you know, and so the place that, you know, the majority of my energy, you know, goes is around uh, mass incarceration and in this criminal injustice system that we have. Everything is connected and um, we can't fight one system without without acknowledging and fighting others. And so, yeah, you got to show up where you can. Well, we're, we're grateful for the coalition work that we're doing. I know, I know that uh, part of the ethos of the, Cor the Poor People's Campaign is to not come in and try to tell all these uh, different um, organizations how to do things better, but to partner up with what, what's, what uh, you're already doing. And uh, what Decarcerate is doing is definitely something worth uh, partnering up with for sure and kind of helping be a support versus uh, try to take over ownership of it. mentioned that uh, you're uh, paid on, as a staffer of Decarcerate, you have your part-time person you're hoping to get full-time, then you have this cult, this um, pool of volunteers who get involved, and you mentioned that the best way for volunteers to get involved with what the different campaigns you're doing. Um, do you want to kind of give a uh, give a little plug to, to how folks can get involved with uh, Decarcerate and uh, how they can get a hold of information about all that you're doing? You know, the best way to get plugged in is, is by, you know, emailing us um, and I can help connect folks um, in different ways. Contact at decarceratear.org is a good way to reach out and that goes straight to me. Um, our website, decarceratear.org, um, has some information about volunteer opportunities, um, 
you know, and has sort of ways to connect. Um, you know, one of the ways to, to connect to our work in an ongoing way uh, is by joining one of these campaigns and becoming part of those monthly meetings um, and, and plugging in around a particular fight or a particular issue. Uh, but you know, there are other ways that folks uh, can get involved uh, as well. Of course, folks can, you know, help support our work financially, but, you know, there are lots of other ways people can, can support the cause. Um, we have folks who respond to letters uh, that we receive from folks um, uh, in prison. We just started a pen pal program with folks uh, who are in solitary confinement. Um, we have folks who help do some different kinds of data collection uh, from time to time. We have graphic designers who help do, um, you know, who help support us in that way. Um, yeah, so there's information on the website about how to join one of our campaigns. And then if there are other ways folks want to connect, um, you know, really the way that we sort of deal with that is folks email us and I have a conversation around their interests and our particular needs and we just try and connect people where it makes sense. Um, but the website's a good place to start, you know, emailing me directly is a good way to start uh, and we'll figure oh, it excellent. out together. That's great. So uh, just to wrap up here, um, obviously right now is a lot of, lot of uh, protests going on, Black Lives Matter, defund the police, all these uh, uh, movements taking place. Do you find, uh, are you finding any encouragement? You see any momentum from this that you think will be useful in the, the work to end mass incarceration? Uh, what's your insight on that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of, of hope in this moment. Um, it's, it's sort of a different level of engagement than I've ever seen uh, in Arkansas. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, myself and, and other folks at Decarcerate are, are uh, you know, using this as an opportunity to plug in with folks who are um, organizing in this moment. And so, um, you know, we've participated in, in, in protests and are, are figuring out other ways to support uh, activists on the ground. And so um, our friend Don Jeffrey set up a, a bail fund um, several weeks ago um, and Decarcerate uh, has become the fiscal sponsor of that fund. And so, right. you know, one of the ways we're helping support um, uh, the work that's being done on the ground it is is really um, by providing some of that you know nonprofit administrative support um, yeah. for uh, the bail fund itself, but also by helping uh, coordinate uh, with lawyers. Um, you know, one of the things that you know one of the outgrowths of this work is that we know lots of lawyers <laughs> uh, and are able to help connect. Uh, folks with legal observers and pro bono representation and, um, you know, support folks who are uh, risking arrest and have been arrested already in this moment uh, here in the state of Arkansas. That's one of the ways we're supporting outside of, you know, putting our feet in the street, um, yeah. you know, from time. And so this moment is directly, you know, uh, 
police and prisons are <laughs> directly connected. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, while it's, while it's not a, you know, an issue that we're directly um, organizing around, it's one that we're happy to uh, support, uh, um, you know, leader, Black Lives Matter leaders and, and, and leaders of color who are, who are doing this work and are, you know, happy to defer to the leadership of folks who are um, joining us in this fight, uh, and we're happy to yeah, join Yeah, very good. I think sure. um, one thing you said that really stood out to me and that gives me encouragement is that there is some organizational infrastructure that has been put in place. Like you said, this, this uh, uh, bail fund, uh, that kind of stuff where this could be become a, we can become much more of an effective organizing, mobilizing community across Arkansas with these things are in place that haven't always been there and gives people more more courage to get out and organize you know with with these things in place do you, do you is that kind of what you're seeing absolutely um i mean the infrastructure we have to support folks who are protesting folks yeah. who are doing activist movement work you know what we have today versus what we had even you know a month or two ago is is night and day um you know there is a bail fund with a lot of money uh in it uh more money in the bail fund than is in decarcerate account <laughs> by quite a bit <laughs> um uh and so there are financial resources um uh for folks who need bail and support in other ways um that's not just limited to bail um that's um you know supporting folks in other ways as well uh, and then also a network of close to 50, 50 lawyers who are willing to do kind of legal observation at protests who are willing to represent folks, do legal research, you know. And so uh, there are, have been over 100 folks go to jail in the last couple of weeks uh, out of protests. Um, and all of those folks have free legal representation. That's great. <laughs> uh, all of those folks, uh, you know, for most arrests, are, with maybe one exception, bail wasn't set uh, around these arrests. Um, one of the results of, of COVID is that jails are, are doing more sight and release, and so folks weren't held on bail. Gotcha. Uh, and so, but, you know, that money exists if they, uh, you know, when they start uh, holding folks in Pulaski County on bail again. So yeah, we've got a we've got an infrastructure that that certainly didn't exist um, a month or two ago, and uh, there's no reason that infrastructure has to go anywhere. You know, right. that money that money's still there a month from now, and those lawyers yeah. are still there a month from now. And so, I hope that that um, that those systems of support, you know, help you know further the work and i definitely you know just speaking from experience it is definitely gives you more confidence to to step out into the uh to do some direct action work when you know that you have that kind of support system behind you that you're not just going to be floating out there i think that's even when you reflect back on the the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s you know they had that, that kind of those kind of infrastructures that were key to that you know so it's good to see that in arkansas Zachary Crow, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I knew it was going to be in, in, enriching and insightful, and it, it did not disappoint. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We are a new, unsettling
We hope that you enjoyed the conversation today. To contact Decarcerate Arkansas, send an email to contact at decarcerate.org. That's contact at decarcerate.org. The Arkansas Poor People's Campaign is focused on lifting the voices of those that are impacted by the evils of injustice. This podcast is aligned with that mission, so we invite you to come join the conversation. If you are interested in sharing your story, reach out to us at arkansas at poorpeoplescampaign.org and let us know that you want to be a guest on the podcast to speak your truth. All who are members or partners with this campaign are welcome. Forward Together is a production of the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign. The host of today's episode was Nate Davis. Producers of the episode include Nate Davis and David Coffey. Script writing by Anissa Rayford Ford. Intro and outro songs created by the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Instrumentals by David Coffey. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign on Facebook and Instagram at Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. On Twitter, at Arkansas PPC, or by going to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org backslash Arkansas. Thank you for listening, and feel free to share this podcast with others.